Today's Old Testament lesson is from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. The New Testament lesson for this morning is Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and behold, a great number that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the angels and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as a fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Well, after Daniel interpreted the king's frightening dream, Nebuchadnezzar was greatly relieved. In fact, the king was so thankful to Daniel that he acknowledged that his young Hebrew servant's God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the revealer of mysteries. The Babylonian king even made good on his promise to reward anyone who could interpret his dream. And he gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole providence of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, Daniel remained in service, as we saw last time, to the royal court until his death about 538 B.C., living well into his 80s. While Daniel remained a trusted court servant to both Babylonian and then later Persian officials, his three Jewish friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were serving elsewhere as high officials in the province of Babylon. This was a favor that Nebuchadnezzar had granted to Daniel on their behalf. <clears throat> now, though Nebuchadnezzar offered high praise to Yahweh because he revealed the meaning of the dream to his servant Daniel, as we saw back in chapter 2, it will become clear that the Babylonian king never does give up his pagan ways. And he erected a golden statue demanding that his subjects worship it. Now, this strange demand is a mix of gigantic royal ego and an ancient Near Eastern power politic combined with pagan worship. And once again, we'll see that Daniel's three friends, their lives are in danger, and this time Daniel will not rescue them, but Yahweh will, in what amounts to the next round in this ongoing conflict between Yahweh and the idols of Babylon. Now, as believers in Yahweh, Daniel's three friends, who were taken captive at the same time Daniel was, refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue, believing this to be a violation of the first two commandments in the law given to Israel by Yahweh. There are no gods but Yahweh, and Yahweh's people are not to worship idols. And upon learning that three of his appointed officials refused to worship the statue, especially three men who were serving in this capacity as a favor to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar erupts in his characteristic rage and fury. The king demands the execution of these rebellious Hebrew officials, just as he'd ordered previously with his court magicians, the Chaldeans. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be spared again, this time in a far more dramatic and miraculous manner. Now this passage, Daniel 3, and by the way, you'll need your Bibles out because we're going to look at the entirety of the passage this morning, is one of the most famous of the so-called Bible stories, along with Daniel in the lion's den. This is a story which Christian children are taught and which very few forget because of the nature of its, the story, its ability to capture a child's imagination, and because of the sing-songy names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you adults may know Louis Armstrong's famous version of this same story. While Bible stories are anything but harmful, the sad fact is they're often sanitized and prone to miss the main redemptive historical point of the original event, which is, in this case, the conflict between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the idols of Babylon, 
reflected in this very difficult struggle faced by Yahweh's faithful servants in exile, who were under tremendous pressure from a pagan king to renounce their faith and who threatens their very lives if they refuse to renounce their faith in Yahweh. The alternative is death and martyrdom, which is ironic because we've seen much the same thing on the news recently in pretty much the same place. As we continue our series on the book of Daniel, we come to an episode that reflects the struggle of Hebrew exiles living in Babylon, now living under the very heavy hand of a very tyrannical king like Nebuchadnezzar. Although commanded by Yahweh to live their lives to the fullest during their exile, we saw Yahweh instruct uh, the Israelites in exile to do this when we looked at Jeremiah 29, uh, and including serving in the government, which was then bringing havoc on their own people, Israel. Yahweh's people are to worship and serve him only during their time away from the promised land. But Nebuchadnezzar now demands that all his subjects worship a newly erected golden statue, an edict which also includes all the exiled Hebrews in Babylon. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's order also included rulers from out his entire kingdom, likely extending back all the way to this Jewish vassal king back in Judah, Zedekiah. In any case, the act of bowing before such a statue would have been an extreme violation of a Jew's conscience, and it would have been considered an open act of disobedience to Yahweh's commandments. So as we turn to our text, the 30 verses of Daniel chapter 3, the scene for us is set in the opening verse uh, for everything that follows. Then King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, gold statue, hmm, where have we heard that before? Well, the irony is that this may have been inspired by the vision that Yahweh had given Nebuchadnezzar previously of a giant, terrifying metal statue with a head of gold, which Daniel identified as Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. Now, there is the very real possibility that the king ordered this statue built as a result with the completion date we can pretty well figure out around December 594 B.C. or January 593. This is a number of years after Daniel had interpreted the dream for the king. Now, based upon the dimensions given here, the statue is 9 feet wide, it's 90 feet tall, it's shaped like an obelisk, and no doubt it has images of Nebuchadnezzar and his gods depicted on each of the four sides. The statue is about the same height as the tall palms that are uh, dominating the landscape there, and only the famous Greek statue, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes, was taller. Now, as recounted in Jeremiah 51, verses 60, uh, 59 through 64, our old friend Zedekiah, who then was king of Judah, was probably forced to go to Babylon and pay homage to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, but then subsequently plotted a revolt against Nebuchadnezzar after being so belittled and humiliated. And if we compare the Babylonian Chronicles with the book of Jeremiah, it may indeed be the case that Zedekiah's negative reaction to being forced to do this, and coupled with Jeremiah's prophecy of Babylon's eventual discussion in Jeremiah 27, was the thing that motivated Judah's king, uh, Zedekiah, to rebel against Babylon by making an alliance with the nations of Edom and all the other ites in, in Canaan. Now, at the same time, Yahweh warned Judah not to do this through the prophet Jeremiah because Yahweh is going to deal with Babylon in his own time and in his own way and he doesn't need Zedekiah's help. 
But it's this rebellion by Judah, led by Zedekiah, that prompted Nebuchadnezzar to sack Jerusalem and burn and destroy the temple in 587. This is why Nebuchadnezzar took such delight in killing Zedekiah's sons before blinding him and then forcibly marching him off to Babylon. And so the events surrounding the construction and the erection of this golden statue that we find here in Daniel 3 reflect a much larger world of ancient politics and royal power as Nebuchadnezzar was seeking some way to shore up the loyalty of his vacillating vassal states, the states that were under his control, which would have included Israel. Making his subjects bow to a statue of his power might just do the trick. Now, although the building and erecting of this statue has both religious and political ramifications, the focus of Daniel 3 is squarely on the religious. A universal religious confession, acknowledging or even worshiping the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, was one way to unify the king's racially and culturally and religiously diverse empire, and it's implied in verses 2 and 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So all of Nebuchadnezzar's subjects throughout his empire, including all government officials, are summoned to attend the dedication of the statue. Now, as one commentator looks at this, he says, you know, there's a marvelous contrasting theme that's skillfully woven throughout the main theme in this chapter. And that is the absolute and unthinking acceptance of polytheistic idolatry among the most of the participants in this convocation. So the willing acceptance of Babylonian religion by Nebuchadnezzar's subjects is the backdrop against which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego represent the faithful Jewish exiles refusing to comply with the king's edict. And so in constructing this image, Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to unite all of his subjects under this joint affirmation of the gods of Babylon symbolized by this golden statue. And so to come to Babylon for the statue's dedication, and mind you, this is no small feat given those days when travel was so difficult, and then pay homage to it by bowing before it, was an act that publicly demonstrated your loyalty to the king's subjects, the vassals, as the king watches, because the king is the suzerain over the Bowie's land and all his property. This is power politics at its worst. If you're truly loyal to your suzerain and you want his blessings, then you'll come to Babylon no matter what expense, no matter how difficult, and you'll come and bow before my statue. And if not, well, then the king knows where you and your people stand. And he knows where you and your people live. And he knows with whom you and your people trade, and he will respond accordingly. And so there's every likelihood that Zedekiah and Judah and Jerusalem and all those taken in exile are going to pay that price, even though Zedekiah, ironically, may have been one of those present for the ceremony. We don't know, but it's certainly possible. Now, in verses 4 to 6, Daniel describes the text of Nebuchadnezzar's order to the assembled crowds. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, 
pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, the response from Nebuchadnezzar's subjects is given in verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, bagpipe, harp, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, as an aside here, you don't get to mention a zither very often in a sermon, but I had to take the, take the time to do that. Uh, three instruments mentioned here are Semitic in origin. And why this is important, I'll explain in just a second. The horn here is a ram's horn. Uh, the pipe is a shepherd's flute. And the lyre here is a zither. You know, you put it on your lap and play it like an a electric guitar, one of those uh, country and western goodies that they use. Zither, what a great name. Three are Greek. A trigon is a four-string harp. It's triangular in shape. The Gibson Flying V of its day, if you would. Uh, a simple harp. And then bagpipes. Bagpipes would be some sort of an instrument with a bellows that you squeezed and air went through it and it made a noise. Furthermore, we know that there were charcoal furnaces common throughout the land for the firing of ceramics, which was a, Nebuchadnezzar, was a, a Babylonian hobby, and for the making of bricks, because everything in Babylon was built from mortar. Now, the mention of all these things support a very early date of 6th century B.C., because these are words that come from this time frame, and that is another just little subtle reminder that the book of Daniel is written when we think it was written way before any of these things happened, and therefore this stuff is prophetic. It isn't written after the fact. Now, back to the main story. At least three of the king's subjects failed to show up for the dedication of the statue, and they very quickly ratted out to Nebuchadnezzar by their co-workers. According to verses 8 to 12, at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are three certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So there are three very specific accusations made by the Chaldeans against the Hebrews. These three Jews do not accept the king's royal authorities, number one. Number two is they don't worship the king's gods. And number three, they didn't bow to the statue. And given what the king had commanded of all his subjects, the accusers are in a sense demanding that these three men be put to death. And since Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were appointed to their offices, and there were a number of Jewish exiles in Babylon already at this time, no doubt they're watched very closely by their Babylonian neighbors. Jealous of their high office, people who despise their Jewish religion, and who really weren't sure of their loyalty to the king. Now, I think it's interesting and illustrative that at this point, throughout this section, Daniel uses the pagan names assigned to his three Hebrew friends to make the point that they're very well known as Babylonians, and that they are expected to bow before the statue as loyal servants of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And in the mind of their accusers, any such refusal to acknowledge the statue immediately exposed these Hebrews as traitors who refused to acknowledge the king or his gods, which were in that day and age essentially one and the same. To bow to the statues, to bow to the king, to bow to the statues, to acknowledge the gods of Babylon. Now, no doubt recalling that these three men had been appointed to their high offices only as a favor to Daniel several years before, this prompts the king to respond in a rage. You know, I've saved your lives once before, and this is how you guys repay me? And so the three men are summoned in verse 13 to appear before the king so that the accusations brought by the Chaldeans might be confirmed through direct testimony. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And now they're going to be questioned, and their loyalty to the king is going to be put to the test. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, it's a pretty simple question. Yahweh or my idols, which is it? Now, the answer in verses 16 to 18 forces Nebuchadnezzar to act, especially in the likelihood that foreign dignitaries are probably still present in the area from every corner of the empire for the dedication of this new statue. There are some perhaps even present in the royal court where this scene's taking place. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he shall deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. Now, these men have already refused to worship the king's statue, so their answer now tells us why they didn't, as well as the fact that these guys are not about to change their minds. They worship and serve Yahweh only. They will obey Yahweh's commandments. They will not worship Nebuchadnezzar's imaginary gods represented by the statue. They trust themselves to Yahweh's care to deliver them from death or else vindicate them before the king for their refusal to bow the knee to any idol, including his. Now, by expressing such faith and courage, they ironically are putting Nebuchadnezzar to the test forcing him to make good on his threat. Now, the conflict between Yahweh and the idols is now public. It's out in the open. And with very important company in town, um, at his behest, you know, he's invited the, the royalty in to, to watch what, to bow. And now he's likely been embarrassed by this very public and rather gross insubordination. And he's certainly angered by the fact that these men have failed to comply. Nebuchadnezzar resorts to taunting them. Who is this God who will deliver you? Now, the answer they give, of course, is Yahweh, the true and living God whom we serve. And their resolution, their faith, and their lack of fear in the face of Nebuchadnezzar's threat pushes the king to the edge. As the king had stated, the penalty for such gross insubordination and rejection of the king's authority was death. Swift, public, painful. 
Now, these three men entrust themselves in faith to Yahweh's care. They're going to accept Yahweh's will. They're going to do the right thing, which is certainly a lesson to all of us. And their words echo the words of the Apostle Peter's in Acts 5.29, when the Sanhedrin demanded that Peter and others stop preaching, the go- stop preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And Peter said to them, we must obey God rather than men. And that's exactly what's going on here. And so Daniel describes what happens in verses 19 to 20 as the royal gasket gets blown yet again. <laughs> then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his faith was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it's usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and to cast them into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, the intense heat coming from the furnace, now fueled by a mixture of hot burning dry wood and pitch, in addition to the usual charcoal, superheats the furnace, and it's apparent to everyone watching. Because these three men were then bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fire's gotten so hot that the elite soldiers commanded to throw these three guys into the furnace. They died because of the heat. Well, the fate of these three three infidels is certain, or at least so it looked. The king's policy is a matter of public record. You don't worship the golden statue, you're going to face my fury in all its wrath. That fury is symbolized by the intense heat of the furnace. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. The king's verdict is final. The sentence of death has been meted out. In a matter of moments, after an expected brief flare-up in the furnace as their bodies exploded and then burned in the heat, nothing would remain of the three infidels. And everyone present would see Nebuchadnezzar's great power and the futility of resisting the great king. But Yahweh never abandons his people in times of trial, especially when they find themselves publicly in a fiery furnace. The narrative of the trial, the sentence and the execution, is rather abruptly interrupted in verse 24 by Nebuchadnezzar's very startled reaction to something unexpected that he sees in the furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in hate. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, Oh, true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire. Everybody saw it. Everybody saw the deaths of those soldiers who bound them and threw them in. And yet Nebuchadnezzar sees something he absolutely cannot believe. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. A fourth man? Who is that? Well, three of the figures unbound, walking in the fiery furnace, unharmed by the heat, are obviously Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And along with Nebuchadnezzar, Christians have long debated the identity of the fourth man seen by the king who appeared like a son of the gods. And not having any biblical categories to help him understand what it was that he was seeing, well, the king falls back on his default religious setting, which is Babylonian paganism. The fourth person has to be an offspring of Bel or Marduk, or a son of one of the gods that's depicted on his big golden statue. The Christians, however, have 
biblical categories to know that if this is not the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, the angel of Yahweh, then it must be an angel sent by Yahweh to protect his servants from harm, perhaps even Gabriel or Michael. Now, such visible manifestation of God's protection of his people can be found throughout redemptive history, especially in the accounts of the pillar of cloud and fire that both led and protected Israel in the Exodus. Or when Joshua meets this mysterious figure who identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 5. And so whether this is the pre-incarnate Jesus or an angel and good arguments can be adduced to support either interpretation, whoever it is, Yahweh protects and then delivers his faithful witnesses, not from the trial, but in the midst of the fiery furnace. Now, if we fast forward 600 years to the coming of Jesus, a similar theme appears in the book of Revelation. We all face our trials with God's protection and God's presence and his promises. And according to verses 13 through 17 of our New Testament lesson this morning, we will hear profound echoes in that passage from Daniel chapter 3. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Sir, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him every day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. But the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, if Yahweh can protect his three servants in the midst of a Babylonian furnace, then he can deliver us from any calamity we happen to face. And in light of the very mysterious providence of God, there are times when God will rescue us from temporal danger, when he will rescue us from serious illness. And there are other times when he rescues us from these things by taking us home to be with him. Our robes will always be washed and purified by the blood of Jesus, whatever circumstances we may be in. He always rescues us. We're even reminded that scorching heat, which is symbolic in revelation of eternal punishment, can harm us. And there's obviously a loud echo in that line from Daniel chapter 3. But meanwhile, back at the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar is just astonished by what he sees. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. This fire is hot enough to kill the mighty men, the soldiers, who bound and then threw the three men into the flames. But these three guys are completely unharmed. They're unbound, and they're able to walk out of the furnace. In fact, we read in verse 27 the reaction of the watching crowds. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. The king and his useless idols just lost another round in the conflict with Yahweh. All those present for the burning of the Hebrew infidels who refused to worship the king's statue, and all those who came to watch the gory spectacle, 
They're as shocked as the king is. They came to see an execution. And instead they become witnesses to Yahweh's mighty power in preserving his people. And along with the crowds, the king, they're all witnesses to the faith that these three men had in the power of Yahweh to deliver them from the fiery furnace. And they are all stunned. Now in verse 28, the king is yet again forced to acknowledge the supremacy of Yahweh over all things, including a superheated furnace, as well as acknowledge the faith which his people place in the true and living God. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their god. Now, there are a number of commentators of the year who consider this to be a kind of confession of faith from Nebuchadnezzar in Yahweh. But there's no evidence that that's the case. The king, however, has to face the obvious. He threw three men into the fire to kill them, and to his shock and dismay, there are four of them in there, and they survive unscathed. And once again, Nebuchadnezzar is forced to bless Yahweh for delivering his servants, and forced to praise the willingness of these three servants to trust their God unto death. The result is an end to the persecution of faithful Jewish exiles living in Babylon. And the chapter ends just as chapter 2 did with amazing declaration of verse 29. After seeing Yahweh's powerful hand in delivering his servants, Nebuchadnezzar exempts the Jews from his edict to worship his statue. Therefore I make a decree... Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, the best indication that Nebuchadnezzar has not exercised saving faith in Yahweh is seen in this very edict. Because he doesn't command his people to worship Yahweh, nor does he repent of his own pagan polytheism. In fact, he still allows his subject to worship the Babylonian deities, including the statue. What he does do is prohibit making blasphemous statements about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He never claims Yahweh as his God, nor as his people's God. But having seen what he just saw, he is impressed and shocked enough in Yahweh's power to allow the Jews to worship him, now exempt from worshiping the king's statue. And almost as an afterthought, almost as a throw line tagged onto the passage, it ends with verse 30, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And I'll bet they got big raises as well. Well, what then do we take with us from this just utterly remarkable passage? Well, the most important fact is that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of anything we endure, the fourth man is always there. God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. Now, there's no personal report here from Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego about their experience in the furnace, but Nebuchadnezzar saw with his own eyes that either the Lord or an angel was present with the faithful servants of Yahweh. I see four men, Nebuchadnezzar says. And he's right. There's always a fourth man with us. Even if we can't see his presence, he's there. And in his mysterious providence, God isn't always going to heal us from illness or accident, though sometimes he does. This isn't a passage telling us we can just jump into a furnace anytime we want and expect to be saved. 
God will not always deliver us from imminent danger. Sometimes he does. If it's his will, he will. And he doesn't always prevent his people from facing the Nebuchadnezzars of their day. Tyrants who threaten God's people with death for not renouncing Jesus Christ. We see this with ISIS in the very same place where this event occurred. But the lesson from Daniel 3, beloved, is crystal clear. God is always with us in the midst of our trials, whatever those trials may be. And the fourth man, whether it be the good shepherd or the angel of the Lord sent to protect us, the fourth man is always with us in our trials. Always. Amen.